Okay. Well, welcome to the graveyard shift. Okay. The after lunch. How are you doing? Okay. Because I'll be watching. Okay. <laughs> and I know a lot of your names now. Okay. <laughs> no, it won't be that brutal. 1517, Martin Luther pins some notices to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg. That's right. And he's remonstrating about what? Lots of things. But what's, what's, one, of the, what's one of the key things, humanly speaking, that leads to the Reformation, which we're thinking about this weekend? That's it. Well done. What are indulgences? Tell us what indulgences are. Uh, you pay money to yep. pretty much guarantee someone's release of prison. That's it. Okay. And so every time you hear the tinkle in the jar, what's that little saying? Um, That's it. Did you all hear that? No. Say it loudly, Jeff. You can do it loudly. <laughs> uh, every time a coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Okay. Mm, so there you go. So that's all you need to do, okay? Pay up. But why, why was the church um, so interested in getting money? I mean, you might think that's a dumb question because the church is always interested in getting money. But uh, why in particular then was the church interested in getting money? Here's your church history lecture. Come on. Building of a church. Building of a church. Trying, what was the name of the church? St. Peter's in Rome. Okay. Did you know? Here's some trivia for you that St. Paul's Cathedral in London fits into St. Peter's sideways. That's pretty, St. Paul's is pretty big, St. Peter's is even bigger. So trying to build a house for God, maybe. Anyhow, we're going to come to the Davidic Covenant today, and so this afternoon. So in your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to read the first 17 verses of that where we come to this next covenant touchdown. I hope you're noticing in these talks that the, the whole key theme of the covenant is about what God does. The problem is that we normally read the Bible with ourselves as the protagonist of the story. I was saying this over lunch, rather than with God as the protagonist of the story. Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to read the first 17 verses. So just follow in your Bible, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the, th from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have promised to David, great David's greater son. We thank you, Father, that you are not contained in a house. Uh, we thank you that though this is a nice building and is where we meet, it's not as though you are here and nowhere else. We thank you, Father, that when David offered to build a house for God, that God's response was so much more. Help us, Father, we pray to understand your word. It's the afternoon. We've just had a good lunch. Help us to stay focused and to listen carefully to what you would say to us this afternoon. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever thought you might do something wonderful for God? Become a missionary. Join a church plant. It's one of the amazing things about the Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm really amazed at and really hats off to you when we appoint church planters we just send them out you guys get teams and send them out and they buy and sell houses and off they go ever thought of doing that that would be something good for god wouldn't it have you ever thought of being maybe getting involved with teaching kids maybe you've got great artistic ability you're the new michelangelo and you're just i don't know a magnificent sistine chapel uh to the glory of god Maybe you're a Jared Mandy Hopkins and you can write amazing poetry. Maybe you're a muso. You know, wouldn't it be nice, not for you, but for God, if you could write the next In Christ Alone that we've just sung? That's just been such an encouragement to so many people. Have you ever thought of doing something wonderful for God? Well, 
without the Davidic covenant. And something that these guys have got in common, I mean, Abram, you know, he's from Ur of the Chaldees. He's, he's comes from a pagan background. I mean, Moses, the story of Moses is not a great story. He's, he's basically a pretty, um, he's pretty well an orphaned boy in some ways, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted into the royal household. A man of very humble beginnings. And then we now come to David, who's not that significant a figure. He's just a shepherd. I guess he grows up from being a shepherd to being a slayer of giants. That's not bad. And then he eventually becomes a king. And he wants to do something for God. It's interesting. See, the difference with covenant theology is this. And if you get this, you've got the day. Okay, if you get this, you can switch off for the afternoon session. No, you can't. <laughs> it doesn't start with what you do for God. It starts with what God does for us. Now, I asked you this morning, most of you gave me the wrong answer. I knew you would. What is the ground of your salvation, obedience or faith? You're, I heard you're going, faith, 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 faith. That's what you do. I know God gives you the faith. That's how you respond. But covenant theology begins with what God gives to us, which is the obedience of Christ. And so David comes to do something for God. I've got three points and there's no alliteration. Number one, David's proposal. Number two, God's disposal of David's proposal. And number three is God's counter-proposal to David's proposal. You with me? Okay, David's, it's after lunch, proposal, God's of David's proposal, and then God's counter-proposal to David's, well done. Okay, let's go through them. There'll be a lot of this in the next hour. I'm just, I'm watching you. Okay, we come to a really significant juncture in the story of the Old Testament here. Look at uh, verse 1, and it's a verse that should take your breath away. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest. If you've read the story of the Old Testament, Joshua leads the people into the land, and there's been the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, which I mentioned this morning in Genesis 15. And it's just one long battle. Joshua to two Samuel is one long battle. And now, look at those words in verse 1, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10 says this, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Wonderful. Has someone got a solution for me, by the way? Could you tell me at afternoon tea about the Gaza-Israel issue at the moment? I've heard a lot of them so far. Come and add the gospel. Thank you. That, that is a good solution. Okay. It's the, only solution. the only solution. Indeed. I'm, I'm hearing experts everywhere. It's such a complicated story. It's always been a complicated story in that part of the world. And here's the problem in the Old Testament, which is different. 
so much blood has been shed over that part of real estate. And so we see in 1 Samuel 21 verse 11, which becomes a very important verse for this. Let me just read it to you, or you can look it up if you want. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David is a man with blood on his hands. And there is rest in the land, but the rest has come at a very significant cost. Now, he's killed enemies from without. Goliath is one. He's solved the problems of enemies from within, starting with the king. If you know the story of Saul, okay, and David, uh, of course, he doesn't kill Saul. He's the Lord's anointed but he's solving the problem there. And David is very much alive at this time of peace and rest. He can sleep well at night and he lives in a beautiful house made of cedar in absolute luxury. He's ensconced in the new Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant is in the temple all is good with God's world. He has given me victory. It's time now to give back. Oh, Logan, how would you feel? A member of your church comes to you and says, God has blessed me in all these ways. How can I give back? Oh, as a pastor, I dream of those sorts of people. <laughs> my name is Haggai. You know the story of Haggai? You're all living in your panelled houses, but the temple of the Lord remains unbuilt. What better present could I give to God? I'm the king. I used to be a shepherd, but I'm the king. It's time to give back. God has blessed me. It's time for me to do something for God. Sounds okay, doesn't it? Verse 2, see how I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to see Logan. I'll come and see the prophet. And I come to the prophet and I say, look, Mr. Nathan, the prophet of God, I want to give something to God. Well, what's the prophet going to say? Look at verse 3. He says, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The greatest king of Israel got it wrong. The prophet of Israel got it wrong. It's amazing. David, the Lord's anointed. Nathan, the Lord's anointed. Prophet and king get it wrong. Something what looks obvious is not the same as that which is God's will. Now, later on, we're going to find out in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 and 8, that the reason that David is not allowed to build the temple is because he's got too much blood on his hands. It's because he's killed his tens of thousands. God blocks it, even though he tries to do something for God. I remember years ago, Jenny and I were dating. My wife, Jenny, and I were dating. And I still remember I was going through my... Um, Less Calvinist stage, that's what I'll say. And uh, <laughs> I was young, I was enthusiastic, I was naive, 
And I remember going past, we, went, we drove past a church, we were just dating, and this church had this magnificent sign out the front. It wasn't a Presbyterian church, but I won't tell you the brand. It said, you need God, God needs you. I said, oh, that's great. And I still remember Jenny saying, God needs you like he needs a hole in the head. I still married her. (laughs) (laughs) You need God, God needs you. God does not need your help. God does not need your communication skills. He doesn't need your program. He doesn't need the new vision from your church. He doesn't need anything from you. Here's the problem. This is one of the doctrines of the Reformation, which is total depravity. It doesn't mean we're totally bad. It means everything good within me is tainted with sin. And even when I want to get involved in ministry, there's a whole lot of tainting with sin within there. And God says, this is not how it's going to be. He says, you are not going to build the temple. It's okay. I'm right now. It's just falling off my ears. Here is the clear teaching of Scripture. Let me be very Presbyterian for a second. No, let me be very biblical for a second. The clear teaching of Scripture is God alone prescribes what is right for worship. He prescribes when the temple will be built. He prescribes by whom the temple will be built. He prescribes where the temple will be built. He prescribes when the temple will be built. He prescribes by whom the temple won't be built. He prescribes what it will be built of, and it goes into great, great um, detail talking about the temple. God is always the author of his own worship. I don't believe in contemporary worship. I don't believe in traditional worship. I don't believe in liturgical worship. I don't believe in youth worship and I don't believe in seniors worship because I don't want to worship any of those things. They're ultimately pleasing the participant in worship. I believe in the worship of God. God is the author of his own worship. We call it the regulative principle that that which is found in scripture is that which is how we will worship. That's what's happening here. So David's got a proposal. Hey, God, I've got a great plan. This is what I'm going to do for you. In some ways, there's nothing wrong with the plan. The problem is the person who's at the center of the worship that's happening there. And here's the problem. The problem again and again and again and again through Scripture is we always want to enthrone ourselves. And that's what David's doing. So number two, what was number two again? It's the afternoon session. Well done. God's disposal of David's proposal. Nathan and David might have worked out their vision for the new capital. They might have formulated their new mission statement. They might have their core commitments there. They might have done all that sort of stuff. But Nathan the prophet has not spoken as a prophet when he says, go do all that is in your heart, because there's one problem he hadn't done as a prophet, which was the core job of a prophet, which was to consult God. So this is now when God speaks, verses 5 to 7 to Nathan. He says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. 
Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's quite simple, permission denied. You're not going to do it. The Almighty does not need a shelter to live in. There are hints that God has something even greater in mind here already. If you look at verse 5, it says, and again, learn some Hebrew at GTC, okay? It's good for you. When you say, Jeff's nodding, when he says, my servant David there, that's the first time we've seen a reference of that sort since my servant Moses back in Numbers 12. Something bigger is going to happen And this is something really significant because we come now to what is the longest speech in the Old Testament uh, since we've been at Sinai. It's clearly some big point in salvation history. What's God saying? Number one, I don't need a temple. I've travelled with my people up to now. I go to a church plant. We're six years old and we've had four venues and COVID. And God is still with us. We've been in a factory, we've been in a gym, you name it, we've been there. Even after the temple is built, even after Solomon and his dedication of the temple, listen to this. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built Yes, God does dwell within the temple after the Solomonic temple is built. But the temple does not contain God. God is so much bigger than the temple. Here's the problem. You've got to understand the ancient Near Eastern world. Every ancient Near Eastern king had a God. And every God looked after the king. So if you went around all the Marduk and all those old ancient Near Eastern, uh, the king and the god were in alliance together. And so basically what the king does, is he domesticates the god to propagate the power of the king. Here's the king. His name is David. Coming to David, to God, offering to build a building. And God says, you can't domesticate me. You can't box me. Is New Zealand a Christian nation? Was New Zealand a Christian nation? Could you ever domesticate God? You may even have from other nations, we may even, it hasn't been the case in New Zealand as far as I know, you may never have had an official religion. Some places do have official religions that are Christianity. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm not getting into politics. But you can't domesticate God. You cannot contain God. So even when Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, was God destroyed? You know, Ezekiel, they go off to Babylon. Is God absent when they lay down by the rivers of Babylon and wept? No, Ezekiel is telling the people that God is still present with us. Even in the New Testament, Jesus comes and we have betwelled his glory and we have seen that Jesus has dwelt among us. We see in John 1.14. I'll give you the Greek even more carefully from the Greek. It doesn't actually say God dwelt among us. It actually says God tabernacled among us. The word there is the word for the tabernacle. It's God's presence is with us. He is with us by his spirit and he does not need a building to do that. 
He is not geographically limited, nor can he be geographically contained. And so for those of us who are leaders within the church, and as I've said to you this morning, that's probably most of you, although some of you more particularly, particularly if you're elders and have such leadership roles, we need to remember that. I wish I had a dollar for this. Every time on a Monday morning when I'm doing my after-sales service at Christ College, I hear this constantly. I say, I say, I just don't know how I can turn my church around. I just don't know what's happening in my church. I don't know how often I've heard it. You know what my answer is. They should know what my answer is. I taught them for goodness sake. Number one, it's not your church. And number two, you can't turn it around. Can we start this conversation again? But we're always trying to domesticate God. We're doing everything right. Do you know, I'm preaching really good sermons. I'm working hard at my sermons. I've got prayer meeting every Thursday. We've got a thriving youth group happening. I have visited the congregation so often that they're sick of me knocking on my front door. I'm pouring out my life in ministry and it's still not working. What am I doing wrong? That's the conversation I hear constantly. God is the author of his own worship. God is the king of his own church. He decides when a church will grow. He calls people from death to life. He is the Alpha and the Omega. I've given up asking God to bless my plans. Don't do that anymore. I now ask God to involve me in his plans. And it's a total difference in how we see things which are his covenantal purposes to bless. So the Bible is not a story. We've got to dethrone ourselves, and this is David's problem. The Bible is not a story of God taking our advice and appreciating the work that we do for him. Adam did not give God the idea of how to redeem humanity in the garden. Noah did not say, hey, God, I've thought an ark might be a good idea because it's going to rain. Abraham did not offer his family forward and his wife, who was 70 years old, to be the mother of a great nation. Moses did not decide to help God out by leading the Israelites out of the promised land. None of these great heroes of the faith took the initiative. And so when David comes and takes the initiative and says, God, I'm going to build you a house, of course he's rejected. Permission denied. It's God's plan, God's design, God's intervention, God's calling. When we understand that, that will grow in us humility It will also grow in us, and this is very important, contentment. Contentment of what God is doing, and within that contentment, simply faithfulness. God calls none of you to be successful. He just calls you to be faithful. Jesus only had 12 in his theological college, and one of them failed badly, and another one of them denied him for a while. Why do I get so stressed? Trust in the purposes of God. But he doesn't just dispose of David's proposal. Point three, God now comes with a counter proposal. And there's a lovely play in the Hebrew here. And here's the good news. The play works in English as well. So you don't have to learn Hebrew for this one. Okay. Rib is the only word you need to know today. David's plans have been squashed. But God comes and he says to David, 
I will build you a house. Have you seen that great Australian export, Crocodile Dundee? It's pretty old now. Have you seen it? The movie? Mick Dundee? Yeah, it's pretty kitsch. And he goes to New York. You know the, favorites, the famous scene in the movie when the, the gangster in New York pulls a knife on him? Do you remember? Everyone knows, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Well, it's kind of like that, okay? That's a pretty trite illustration. Uh, God says to David, that's not a house. This is a house, is the counterproposal that comes back. And the house that he's going to talk of here is a house that supersedes a brick house. It's a dynasty. We use the word house like that. We say the house of the, the Tudors and the Romanovs and all the, you know, the house of Windsor. We talk about royal dynasties. We even talk about the Third Reich and such houses. But these house is going to be even greater and it's not going to be a house that is a house of physical descent from Saul, because we know that Jonathan doesn't even succeed Saul. It's going to be a house of physical descent that is going to lead to great David's greatest son. See, here's the problem. David's motives have been mixed. The building of the temple of David would have ensured the greatness of his name for generations. You can ensure the greatness. Who's the most famous person, the best-known name of the 20th century? You know who it is. Who is the best-known name of the 20th century? You don't know? Wikipedia, you'll find everything there. Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is the most well-known name of the 20th century. Now, I'm not saying David's like Adolf Hitler. But there's lots of ways to build a name for yourself. But God says, I will make you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. Our name is our reputation. And when people use our name in different ways, we get upset or not upset. And there's two sorts of names that are working, and it's interesting to know which sort of name we are. The first name was in Genesis chapter 11, when the people said, we will build a name for ourselves on the plains of Shinar. And they build a tower, which is the Tower of Babel, that reaches to the heavens. It's lovely because if you read that passage, read it again when you go home, that God looks, the tower that reaches to the heaven, and God looks down upon this little tower that they tried to build to build a name for themselves, and God just obliterates uh, what has happened there. But in the very next chapter, which we looked at this morning, we see Genesis 12 verse 2, God says to Abram, I will bless you and make your name great. It's a massive problem. I don't know how to deal with it. I blame the internet. We live in a world of portraying our name in social media. We live in a world of building our reputation. Uh, we Australians and New Zealanders used to be the understated people of the world, but we're actually now recognising that in order to succeed, we need to build a name for ourselves. That was David's problem. David sought to build a name for himself. But we are Christians. And the very word Christian carries the name Christ. 
It is Christ who gives us our name. It is he who was humiliated who gives us our name. And so David needs to understand it's not about what he does for God. It's what God is doing through him and God will work the results through. Now let's not jump too quickly to Jesus. This dynasty will have a way to go before it gets to Jesus. We've still got so much to learn about God's character. Uh, God's commitment will be seen in David's son Solomon. Verse 14, look what it says there. When he commits iniquity, that's clearly not talking about Jesus, I will discipline him with a rod of men. And so we see that happen. Solomon, he was a shocker after David. He's power hungry, he's polygamous, he's idolatrous, and he was disciplined. And after Solomon's death, we see the kingdom was split between the north and the south, and God continues to discipline But 1 Kings chapter 11, for the sake of David, your father, he says, I will not tear away all the kingdom. What's happening? Try and get it here. David says, God, I will build you a house. It sounds noble, but what is the basis of that? The basis of that is David's commitment, which is a pretty flaky sort of basis. God comes back with his counter-proposal and God's counter-proposal is, no, I will build the house, note the subject of the verb, and because God is the one who promises to build the house through the dynastic rule of of David's and David's children, we know that it rests on the faithfulness of God. God's covenant is always concerned with God's faithfulness. If you read the Bible any other way, and I'm sure you have, we all have, So often we read the Bible and we feel awkward at the end of it. We feel all over the place at the end of it. And that's because all we are reading is human responsibility. Human responsibility is really important, but you do not understand human responsibility outside of divine initiative. And that's the problem that David needs to get to, of understanding it's God's work. So right through the Old Testament, despite human disobedience, God remains committed. He doesn't discard his covenant with Abram when Abram sleeps with Hagar. He stays faithful. He doesn't discard the Israelites when we get to the burning calf, the, uh, the golden calf issue in uh, Exodus 34. His commitment is sure because he is committed to his word. That's why he disciplines us. That's why he forgives us. That's why he does not abandon us. God has sworn to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, that he will build this house. And that depends on his grace. That's why we're talking about this as the covenant of grace, because grace happens in the context of sin. In the context of the fall, God comes to the serpent and says that the seed of the woman will stamp upon, will strike the head of the serpent. God has made that purpose in his grace and God has remained faithful to it all the way through. And so he says here to David the same thing again, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. 
Now, if you take that seriously, that David's, that David's house will always be there, you can take it one of two ways, and it's pretty easy to know which way to take it. Number one, you could say that there will always be a Davidic king upon the throne of Israel. Is that the case today? No. Jews today, many Jews in Sydney, Jews today can no longer trace which tribe they belong to. It's a very rare Jew who could do that. I don't think that anyone could. You could not trace your line back to the Davidic line. It doesn't mean that there will always be a Davidic throne in Israel. Well, what's the other alternative? The other alternative is that there will be a Davidic king who will last forever. And that's what's happening. So when we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it focuses on two people. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. They're the two people that are really important. We go through generations uh, from Abraham to David. We go from David to the exile, etc. They're the significant things that are happening there because this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and also fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. A thousand years has elapsed between the time of David and the time of Jesus. There have been lots of twists and turns. The kingdom has been split. Davidic dynasty continues in the south. The people of the north are dragged into exile. The people of the south have dragged into exile. We've had Babylonians coming. We've got Persians coming in. We've got Greeks coming in. We've got Romans coming in. God's commitment to his covenant remains. It looks impossible, but it depends on the promise of God. Listen to some of these promises. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, Amos chapter 9, I will restore David's fallen tent. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. You know this one well at Christmas. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father. Of the increase of his government of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. Today, Luke chapter 2, in the town of David. A saviour has been born to you. God's counter-proposal to David is so much greater than David's proposal to God. King Jesus, and Matthew goes into great detail to show this, King Jesus is born of the Davidic line. He is great David's greatest son. He is the Messiah. Now, Here's the problem. We've got a new king. Is that good? You don't know what to say, do you? Okay. We've got a new queen. Is that good? Don't answer. <sighs> Please don't answer the next question. On October the 14th, we had a referendum in Australia but you had an election. Don't answer. Do not answer. I don't want to know your answer. Was that a good thing? Don't answer. Do you want to have a king? Look, I'm not talking about Charles. I'm talking about a king. Please don't think that Charles III is a king. He's got no power, at least according to the ancient world. Kings have got absolute power. Do you want a king? 
if he's good. Here's the problem. You are so democratized that you actually think God is your president or your prime minister or someone you can vote in every few years on the 14th of October. We cannot conceive of a kingdom because we live in a constitutional monarchy. And it terrifies us to give anybody that much power. But could you imagine a king who was incorruptible? Could you imagine a king that is perfectly just, where all his actions are right? Could you imagine a king who, when tempted, is not deceived? Could you imagine a king who uses his power in humble sacrifice and grace? Could you imagine a king who is the source of wisdom and whose justice and mercy meet together? He's not a president we elect. He is a king who elects us. We've got it round the wrong way. I don't know how many times I've had the conversation with people who tell me why they've given up on God because he no longer gets their vote. We do not elect God. We do not have an understanding of kingship. But great David's greatest son is the fulfilment of the house, the dynasty that is promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he is the one who is right and perfect and incorruptible. And he take, lays down his life only to take it up again. Do you want to serve that king? A king of service, of righteousness and of justice? I do. And if you are someone here today who's just rocking in here today and you're thinking, oh, all this covenant stuff, or maybe you're somebody rocking in here today and say, oh, that Christian stuff, you're kind of just checking us out. Or maybe you've got friends like this and you say, I don't want any kingdoms to rule over my life. Don't kid yourself. I don't know many people in Auckland, but I know this to be true. How many people in Auckland? 1.5 million? There are 1.5 million people in Auckland and every one of them has a king who is an absolute monarch who gives them no choice. Even freedom is a tyrant. The issue is, which king will you serve? It's not an issue of whether you want a king. It's not an issue of whether you want a Messiah. You have a Messiah. It might be education, it might be money, it might be career, it might be family, it might be, might be, might be. It might be sexual gratification, it might be your freedom, it might be wherever it is, but it is an indisputable king and you cannot see the world without looking at the world through that lens. It dictates everything that you do. Everyone has a king. David goes to God and says, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, that's not a house. This is a house. It's a dynasty from which will come the king who is pure justice, pure mercy, who lays down his life only, only to take it back again, in whose service is perfect freedom. 
why would you not want to serve that king? It's not what you do for God. It's what God does through you. We've got so much to learn. Christianity is not about what we do for Jesus. Christianity is about what King Jesus has done and will do. You cannot domesticate God. God is always the author of his own worship. God is always the author of his own rule. Jesus comes as prophet who declares God, as priest who is the sacrifice before God, and who is the king who is God's right to rule over all. Jesus comes as great David's greater king. Tell you what, the temple in Jerusalem was great under Solomon, but it was destroyed. The next temple, at the time of Haggai, it was destroyed. You cannot find the temple today in Jerusalem, or all that the Western Wall is, is part of Herod's embellishment of the temple. Those houses have disappeared. That's not a house. God says to David, you call that a house? No, this is a house. It's a dynasty of a king who lasts forever. And the question for us and for our families and for 1.5 million people in Auckland and 5.5 million people in New, in New Zealand and 8, 8 billion people around the world is not will you serve a king. You can't elect a king. But which king will you serve? And here is the amazing thing. That the king of the covenant, the one who fulfilled the promises to Abram, the one who stood on the rock with Moses, calls us to be his own and what amazing love that the father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons of god let's pray our father we thank you so much for the promise to david we thank you that we have been grafted in to great david's greater son we thank you that your purposes last for more than just a generation, but that he is a king forever. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to see the kings that we submit to, and we pray that our lives would be in submission to King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.